So the first speaker will be uh, Dr. Ivan Darius Alfonso on uh, my extreme right, your left. He has a PhD from Birkbeck. He's currently working on a book on cultural memory in the Cuban diaspora. And second, uh, in the middle, is Dr. Angela Dorado Otero. She's a postdoctoral teaching and research fellow uh, in Iberian Latin American studies at Queen Mary. And her last book was called Dialogic Aspects in the Cuban Novel of the 1990s. And immediately here is Dr. Juan Orlando Perez Gonzalez. Uh, he's a senior lecturer in the Department of Media, Culture, and Language at Roehampton. And he's the author of a blog, Juan C. Nada, which sounds very interesting, uh, <laughs> and of a widely read column in a Cuban online magazine, El Estornudo. So we'll start with, uh, with Ivan and proceed there. Well, uh, I just want to talk about the, my current research and the way it uh, somehow informs the writing of the book, which was uh, uh, written, some sort of written way before I started everything, everything meaning my PhD, my, my research about Cubans in London. And um, so, and after that, uh, of course, part of the literature I read for the PhD, part of the uh, those were years where uh, the Cuban diaspora was becoming very uh, visible, thanks to the new media technologies, especially the internet. That was the start of blogs, which is part of the current research I'm looking at. The way the blogs are, especially or, or at, at at a time, because blogging has. Um, is not as popular as it was before in the in the early 2000s, but uh, the way the, it's it's shaping the memories about the the migrants' past and the way it, this past is being constructed and and the way it, it uh, allows interactions and and the stories about the book are as well somehow related to that construction of the past, but of course work of fiction. And uh, it's very specific for, for reasons we will talk about it. Uh, but yes, uh, and at the beginning I'm looking about the, this, um, um, the way the cultural memory is being shaped in, in the in diaspora. I'm looking at a specific uh, context of the diaspora, I would say. I'm looking at uh, migrants which are based in Western Europe mostly. Uh, why? Because uh, these were places where they weren't traditionally associated as destinations for Cubans to migrate. Most of the Cuban diaspora is based in the United States. It's a community that's been uh, there for a long time, since the early days of the Cuban Revolution. It has grown a lot um, in, in the 60s, in the 80s, several wave, waves of migratory uh, movements, and even... Um, in the recent years, until uh, or until last year, when the policy of uh, dry feet, uh, wet feet, was uh, uh, terminated by President Obama, but uh, there's a, a huge uh, Cuban community there, and they have it has its specific um, context, its political aims, I would say, and and of course they have bloggers as well, and and but I I find that. Those uh, who are based in Europe share a, a different um, way of relating to their past in, in, in the homeland. <coughs> Sorry. 
And of course, um, we have to understand this uh, reconstruction of the memory in terms of the way uh, they, they have arrived at, at a time in diaspora where uh, the memory of the past has been heavily shaped by the Cuban media which, uh, or, or the Cuban official media, which uh, um, of course had a grip on the representation of the past in, in the country. Uh, but I think that blogging or, or bloggers, in, in this sense, uh, help to shatter that 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 uh, uh, that grip of or, or that um, sense of uh, he hegemonic, I would say, uh, views about the the past. Um, especially not only bloggers abroad, but only also bloggers in Cuba, uh, in the sense that they provide another uh, a representation as well, and they provided text about everyday life, about the way the, the country was perceived by them and by by, by other foreigners. Um, and in that sense, I would say that it it has become this the, the blogosphere has become a, or became a very a uh, vibrant public sphere um, because many of the sites are not only, um, uh, I would say, providers of aggregated uh, news or opinion pieces or, or, or memories of the, of the island or the past, but also they provide a lot of space for interactions with, with people that um, and, uh, go there and comment. And of course, it comes to con contributes to uh, contributes to a kind of a, we would say transnational bonding in the sense that many diasporic Cubans now uh, or, or tend to, to go to the sites where uh, memories uh, pertaining to a, a specific past were shared. I'm thinking about a blog called uh, Muñequitos Rusos, which is Russian cartoons, which were very influential for our generation. And when this blog was active, it, it uh, gathered a lot of comments, a lot of interactions between uh, diasporic Cubans. Um, uh, I would say that in the Cuban context, uh, the appearance of blogs uh, uh, were a novelty on two distinct levels. Uh, for example, they were a, a novel medium uh, given the technological advantages of the web because the Cubans just needed access to a computer and the internet in order to create their own blogs in an increasingly easy manner. But I would say uh, it, it, it sounded uh, rather interesting or, or peculiar in a way that many of these blogs, uh, especially the ones who provide the memories of the past, um, accounted for a, for a, a medium that uh, was hardly used in Cuba. I would think that media in, on the island was very uh, restricted in the sense, not only in promoting a version of the past, which of course was edited and um, heavily reliant on, um, I would say, the most uh, heroic representations of the past, but also uh, it, it, the, the traditional Cuban media, or the official Cuban media, didn't give much space for individuals, individual Cubans to share their memories, or not only about their past, but also about the present. So in that sense, the internet gave a, a more, um, of course, it was more democratic in the sense that anyone could open a blog and share this, his, his or her memories about the, the, the time um, in, in Cuba. Um, so I would say that these the blogs were, were 
uh, influential as a tool of self-expression in ways that they were, were previously unknown. Um, uh, of course, in, in the case of Cubans on the islands, that was very difficult because internet is not as easily available as to those who are settled <coughs> or lived in, in other countries. Um, and in the sense it was, uh, uh, well, both, both, both bloggers could, um, um, could challenge the prevalence of the official media in representations of the, of the country, but of course, those who live abroad had more, more possibility of, uh, possibilities of sharing these, uh, their accounts and, and, and doing it more, more um, often. <clears throat> Um, we had reviewed the, the, because at the beginning, I, uh, when in the early 2000s, I was a I was, uh, um, member of the Cuban media, and I was working on the online uh, versions of the websites and, and national strategies uh, from the organization of journalists in order to promote digital uh, journalism. But we have reviewed, uh, of course, after that, many uh, Cuban websites were created, all the newspapers and radio stations were on the internet. But we reviewed um, for an article uh, last year um, all this production during the 20 years of the uh, digital uh, uh, journalism on, on the island. And we found that uh, there was little changes in the ideological missions of the country's media. The aim of defending the homeland and the revolution was still regarded as a mobilizatory force and an incentive to safeguard, safeguard the, the island's unity. Uh, and, and the media has very instrumental in, in creating discursive strategies where the past is evoked in epic terms, uh, reflecting the heroism of the early revolutionary years uh, um, moments as, uh, as the Bay of Pigs invasion, the missile crisis, or to construct to contrast this this version of the past with a well-known catalog of all the ills of pre-revolutionary Cuba. Um, and I would say or we agreed that uh, after this review that uh, the media, Cuban media, has directed the country's collective memory to specific targets to those events and scenarios that have enabled a positive reinforcement of the authenticity <coughs> and legitimacy of the revolutionary go government. Uh, this has been possible by implementing a national scheme of uh, what authors like Paul Conrad calls uh, collective forgetting, where resulting versions of the past favorable to the ideological aims have been essentialized uh, to suit a common narrative of a nation and national identity. So outside this cultural amnesia, which is another uh, term that Paul Connerton's used, an epic representation of the past within the revolutionary and post-Soviet years, uh, Cuban personal accounts of these events have remained lar largely absent on or inaccessible because they didn't have, on the island, they didn't have the media to make them, these accounts uh, public or share and internet help in that sense. That's why I was, I was looking at, at blogs as well. Of course, and with the advent of internet and blogging platforms and later with social media networks as well, personal narrations of the common past have begun to appear. <clears throat> um, 
Uh, so on the one hand, we had this um, uh, collective version of the past, which was, as I said, which was um, uh, created in a specific way thanks to the impact of media. And, um, and that provided a common sense or a common uh, commonality within these migrants, which uh, one of the things we looked at the blogs in, in, in specific uh, is the way they, they are trying to reproduce these uh, commonalities by highlighting their differences also. Um, we know from, this, from, from, from memory studies that uh, no memory, or from, from, from the initial words of Maurice Halbach, that no memory is possible outside the frameworks used by people living in society to determine and retrieve their collections. So r recollections and memory is always plural, is always collective, because one, uh, people uh, depend on all the people to, to remember particular events and so on. Uh, in the case of Cuba, it was very interesting in the sense that they, Gaspar uh, mm, uh, Cubans and, and, and bloggers specifically, re referred to a, spe a specific common past, uh, which uh, they think they had in, in on the island, and, and of course with with this blog about uh, Russian cartoons, for example, they were able to acknowledge these commonalities. But in the same way. Uh, they they um, reconstruct their, those memories in in the sense that they provide uh, personal accounts which were not always in line with the uh, more common uh, representations of, of the past in in terms of ideology of course not only because they want to make the ideological point clearer uh, it's not only because they are in in in, in clear opposition within this um, uh, political uh, main discourse, hegemonic discourse about the country and its past and the way the nation is uh, pro pro promoted and constructed. Uh, it, it, it appeals more to personal uh, reinterpretations of that, that past and the way they uh, identify themselves, of course. And these, these new versions of the past are always very influential in terms of, the, of their identity because they can now acknowledge that they have gained um, uh, a new knowledge of the country left behind and in that sense they can identify with this uh, uh, version of the past which is uh, more uh, uh, relevant to their lives nowadays. So we, we studied some blogs of a long list of, of about 1,000 blogs that were in, in the highlights of the uh, uh, blogging uh, in, on the internet. And uh, we found that Cubans in Europe are, uh, rather than uh, those who stayed in the United States who have formed ethnic enclaves and, and, and live in very um, communal uh, uh, environments or they create their own ethnic communities. In Europe, they, they tend to remain geographically dispersed and reluctant to form ethnic neighbors, as some of the migrants do, and, and they reflect that on their, their um, narrations on, on, on the blogs. But the internet has helped them also in overcome this dispersion. And lately, with the emerging of social media, particularly on Facebook, Many pages have sprung up with the title Cuban in, uh, well, London, in the UK, in Germany, in Belgium, in Austria. 
where many destinations uh, Cuban nationals have chosen to migrate, uh, emigrate are listed. Um, so the blogs could be um, divided into there are personal diaries and, and meeting points and uh, distributions based on the blog comments as well as on, on the apparent aim of their creator because most of them reveal the blogger's identity as diarist uh, when they provide personal accounts of, the, of their everyday life in diaspora with a subsequent uh, retrospective about previous experiences on the homeland. And the others serve as meeting point because they are conceived as a spaces for the production and sharing of collective memor memories of this, this common um, past. Um, um, so I approach the past in a different way for the book, which uh, uh, we're launching today in the sense that uh, when I started reading about the Cuban diaspora, I always got the accounts of the people who left, but never had the um, um, references of the people who stayed. And uh, in the early 90s, when uh, migration laws were <coughs> relaxed in a way, and Cubans were allowed to emigrate, um, uh, many left and their families stay there and this as the year has passed this family relatives uh, parents uh, grandparents had aged and uh, I was trying to look at the way diaspora had influenced their uh, life uh, on the island in a way and these are people who left who lived uh, during a very controversial or um, epic or um, uh, active periods of the Cuba, recent Cuban history of or, or the history of the Cuban revolution and after the uh, collapse of socialism and, and in what we or after the special period of course so their life in Cuba has changed dramatically and the way they uh, reflect or remember that past as well it has changed and of course, with relatives living in other countries, uh, um, their their perception of the world, their perception of the way they are uh, um, presented, and even their relation to their past, uh, to this past that the Cuban media insists on portraying as uh, glorious and epic, in in terms of um, guaranteeing national unity, well, their relation to that past has changed as well. Uh, these are stories where based on uh, old people, basically, and I try to uh, tell, uh, of course, in, in the blogs you would look at the uh, in uh, specific instances where people remember uh, specific events that changed the way of thinking about the country, about the government, about their relation, their own relation to their past. Um, uh, but I'm looking at uh, very specific events in, in the life of people who have remained and for some reason most of them, although this came out uh, unconsciously, it, of course, has an influence of all the research I was doing, but most of the characters have relatives living abroad, so their existence in Cuba is, is mediated and changed by that uh, fact, which in previous times was unknown. And I'm trying to uh, narrate the, a day in their life. So each story is a 24-hour period of an old person living 
in Muslim queue. Well, I wrote one in London because it was my tribute to the mm -hmm. city. I had lived here for eight years. So, and doing this research in queues in London, I was expecting to find people who had emigrated in the early 90s, but I came up, um, I come across people who were here from the 1980s uh, un, un, and even from earlier uh, of that time. So their um, experience of diaspora was totally different from those who came in the early 90s, uh, for example. Over to Angela. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you to Ivan to inviting me here, and thank you to all of you to, to be here. Um, today I'm going to talk a bit about uh, what I consider some uh, characteristic, uh, general ones, of uh, Cuban literature during the special uh, period. Um, so in this presentation, I will uh, posit that during the special period, uh, the novels of Cuban authors who are um, products of the educational system of the Cuban Revolution, regardless of their place of re residence, normally share a common territorialization. Uh, there is special um, constant is the island of Cuba and Cuban imagery um, used as starting uh, points in a way. Uh, at the time, in relation to Cuban literature in exile, Yvette uh, Sanchez has argued that the narrative written in exile attempts to create bridges uh, that rely on nostalgia and frozen memories. In her words, and I quote, sin contacto directo con la vida cotidiana de aquella isla, se sigue manteniendo y nutriendo una relación mediante la memoria y la información actualizada de experiencias ajenas. En el destierro se engendran recuerdos, sueños, fantasmas y proyecciones teñidos por la añoranza que congelan una imagen propia del pasado, combinada con las impresiones de segunda mano enviadas a través de diferentes canales, por los que se han eh, quedado allá. La narrativa escrita en el exilio parte mostrar especial interés por recuperar el pulso diario de la tierra perdida, por luchar contra el desarraigo y compensarlo, al menos en la dimensión ficticia. End of the quote. Nonetheless, I posit that this tendency to recuperate an image of the island that belongs to the past and that can only be retrieved for the present through the world is also found in writers on the island in the narratives of the 90s. And it is also worth noted that uh, Sanchez um, has suffered a reductionist focus in terms of the Cuban diaspora, where we also find those who travel back and forth and not in the permanent disconnected exile that uh, she suggests. What it is at the core of the narratives of the 90s is the preservation of cultural memory, particularly in the relation to an island in constant flux in terms of migration. In this way, the concept of Cubania, of Cubanness, 
is contextualized within the parameters defined by Fernando Ortiz as, and I quote, Cubanidad plena, sentida, consciente y deseada, end of the quote. Thus, also challenging any homogenizing monologic position that would place Cubanness as limited geographical experience that can only be achieved on the island. I agree with Dennis Berenchard when he states that, and I quote, en la práctica se debe hablar de múltiples cubanidades y estas no se limitan al espacio geográfico insular. En Cuba los eventos históricos de la revolución desde su triunfo en 1959 hasta el periodo especial en los 90 han transformado profundamente las identidades cubanas. Pero estas versiones, en perenne estado de mutación de, de, de cubanidad, hay que añadirle las identidades cubanas que resultan de la experiencia exílica forjadas mediante el encuentro con la cultura de la patria adoptiva donde quiera que se la encuentre. End of the quote. I suggest that when analyzing Cuban literature in the 90s, we can talk about a Cubanía desterritorializada with the issue of national identity in the constant process of definition and redefinition that relies on previous versions in order to construct new meanings, as in a sort of palimpsest, uh, which would respond to the uh, new experiences. Cuban culture appears then represented as fluid and transnational, diverse and decentered. As Omar Eti states in the introduction of his edited book, Todas las Islas, La Isla, and I quote, La Isla se ha multiplicado en muchas islas sin perder su unidad transterritorial. End of the quote. Cuban narratives of the 90s in response to and influenced by the hardship of the special period and the historical circumstances of the country represent a turning point in the creation of the Cuban novel. In the relatively recent narratives of the 90s, authors have increased the use of discursive techniques to create polyphonic narratives and dialogism in line with Bactinian theoretical um, theories. I mean. uh, these polyphonic narratives written in the 90s serve common concerns when subverting homogenized views of Cuban identity and thus cross-examining the discourse of the state. In undermining monolithic representations of reality, these polyphonic texts employ discursive techniques that question absolute truths, defy established boundaries of literary genres, and challenge concepts of national gender and individual identity. I claim that this literature responds to economic hardship, political and social changes, and issues of, of Cubania and exile. I believe that in Cuban narratives of the 90s, both on the island and abroad, intertextuality seems to be a dominant feature um, to the point of finding a tendency to create a Vartitian infinite, infinite text, 
thus creating at times a palimpsest, an overlay of writings and rewritings which are prevalent in the works, for example, of uh, Cuban authors such as Abilio Estevez or even Reynaldo Arenas, and then we can connect with Ivan's writings as well. Just to mention um, a couple of examples. I suggest that this process becomes a discursive mechanism to create a non-official history, a memory from the margins which acts as a form of cultural resistance to monolithic um, representations of Cubanness. So Cuban literature in the 90s appears, particu appears particularly associated to processes of self-knowledge, alterity, and to strategies to reach the other, exploring strategies to reach self-awareness in order for the subjects to understand their own circumstances and to reach a better understanding of themselves and of the other. Hence, I suggest that the most important change in the literature of the 90s is a shift to, towards um, focus on the subjectivity of the characters who become dialogic in a process of becoming and thus are uh, presented as unfinalized. At the same time, writing in these novels also become a site of resistance against hegemonic discourses and a way of creating, in line with oral history, a new version of history from below. Many Cuban authors, particularly in the 90s, begin to challenge the dichotomy of outside and inside Cuba, or left revolutionary and right counter-revolutionary discourses, a bipolarity which I, I also find unproductive when studying Cuban culture and the fluidity and heterogeneity that it displays. I suggest that the authors themselves through their own displacements and um, relocations, have challenged the inside and outside dichotomy to a large extent. Moreover, Yvette Sanchez, for example, summarizes the, future, the, the characteristics of the narratives of the so-called novissimos and asserts that, and I quote, Se cultiva una estética de lo crudo y lo soez combinada con un discurso realista y una estructura tradicional de relato lineal en tercera persona con narrador omnisciente. Como antídoto contra las estrategias peyorativas, despreciativas, rabajadoras de la actualidad de la isla, la mayoría de los literatos desterrados recurren a mitos equivalentes a la expulsión del Edén, idílico, inocente y tropical, o de la tierra prometida de leche y miel. Se evocan las concepciones arquetípicas de, la, de las utopías regresivas, cualquier tiempo pasado fue mejor, y del paraíso perdido y rebuscado. La pérdida de la infancia de ideales sinestésicos, sensuales, físicos, individuales, ontogenéticos, y el anhelo de volver a ellos activa los recuerdos, a través de los olores, por ejemplo, 
panorama contradictorio y ambivalente de fuerzas, la utopista o idealizadora y la desmitificadora o de derrumbe, end of the quotation. Although I believe that labels work best in terms of marketing strategies, as was the case, for example, with the boon of the Latin American novel, um, rather than as establishing true generations of writers, particularly in the broad spectrum that we find in Cuban writers, I would suggest that some Cuban authors who write about this special period present certain characteristics of the so-called uh, novissimos. However, I would posit that the 1990s were a period of experimentation clearly showing a change in aesthetics in response to different realities after the changes in the international socialist camp, which uh, translated from those in Cuba into the uh, special, special period of the um, early 90s. In this period, in particular, Cuban authors within and beyond the island managed to create polyphonic and dialogic novels that challenged any notion or portrayals of Cuban culture and identity as homogeneous or monolithic. Critics such as Gustavo Firmat and others have noted the, and I quote, transterritorialidad de la cultura cubana, end of the quote, as expressed well by Lilian Mansour, for example, and I quote, displacements, physical border crossing, and cultural discontinuities force us to theorize national identity as a, in another light, to disarticulate at the theoretical level what history has already separated, the anchoring of a national culture within one specific geographical space and within one linear history, or end of the quote. This re-evaluation of the concept of national identity is a leitmotif of the narratives of the 90s that seek to amplify the margins of Cuban identity. In the novels of the special period, with a setting in Cuba, the characters generally insert their subjectivity into a national discourse and demand a space within it. The narrative of the special period is also characterized by narrative experimentation, a proliferation of intertextuality, as I mentioned before, and fragmented narratives in which irony and humor permeate and subvert traditional notions of the text. Uh, texts require an active reader who will explore the signifieds of texts that are not fixed and that remain open to interpretation. I would add that the Bactinian heteroglossia that appears in these new narratives is which the novels become, sorry, in which the novels become polyphonic texts as a plurality of voices are heard, is an aesthetic that combines both 
high culture and popular culture in order to link the highbrow and the vulgar um, within Cuban society. I claim that this carnivalesque attitude allows the authors uh, to explore subjectivities that challenge uh, different uh, kinds of um, hierarchies, uh, be they social or political. As Pam Morris explains in reference to Bakhtin's dialogical theory, and I quote, any ruling class will attempt to monologize the world, imposing an eternal single meaning upon it. But a living ideological sign is always a dialogic. Any word can be reaccentuated, a curse can be spoken as a word of praise, and any word can provoke is counter word. End of the quote. Furthermore, Morris argues that, according to Bakhtin, and I quote, within language there is always a work as, um, at work, a centripetal force which aims at centralizing and unifying meaning. Without this impulse, the shared basis of understanding necessary for social life would um, disintegrate. This centripetal force in this course is put to use by any dominant social group to impose its own monologic unitary perceptions of truth. However, always working against that centralizing process is a centrifugal force, the force of the heteroglossia, which stratifies and fragments ideological thought into multiple views of the world, um, end of the quote. I claim that this is the reason why many Cuban authors have chosen heteroglossia, polyphony, and intertextuality as their subversive strategies against the discourse of power. As Sue Weiss explains, polyphony means multi-voiceness while heteroglossia means multi-languageness. As Maury explains, and I quote, any monologic truth claims, claims made by one social language will be relativized by the existence of other views of the world. Thus, the dialogic relations within heteroglossia uh, brings about the destruction of any absolute uh, bonding of ideological meaning to language. This is nothing less than a radical revolution in the destinies of human discourse, the fundamental liberation of culture, semantic and emotional intentions from the hegemony, hegemony of a single language as an absolute form of thought, end of the quote. It is also worth noting that the Cuban novel of the 90s, with its characteristic narrative dialogism, pays thematic emphasis on sexuality as a site of resistance and as an excessive metaphor uh, of freedom. This is something that we uh, found first particularly exploited in works um, of Reynaldo Arenas, for example. However, women novelists uh, of the last 20 years have internalized feminist um, postulates 
and adopted a subversive feminist discourse in their creative products to refocus and challenge patriarchal concepts concerning the role of women in society. I claim that Cuban female writers inscribe femininity into the world of the symbolic in order to challenge classic representations, representations of women and patriarchal uh, language through the use of the erotic discourse. Hence, in both male and female writers, we find new challenges to establish um, um, discursive political agendas, be they on the island or in exile, because Cuban uh, cultural uh, production is not monolithic, or as, for example, um, uh, the works of Enalucia Portela, Margarita Mateo Palmer um, clear, clearly show us. I claim that Cuban narratives of the special period introduced a turning point in terms of cultural production, subverting fixed notions of identity, reality, and textuality, more in line with contemporary concerns in global uh, literature. Many thanks. I, uh, you all, uh, first, uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you, Ivan, for inviting me to talk about the book. Um, I have prepared uh, some notes about the book, so they are not academic, bear with me. Uh, and this is what I wrote. Uh, reading my friend Ivan Darias's collection of short stories, Viejos Retratos de La Habana, I had the impression that I personally knew each of his characters. They are my mother's friends, my father's neighbors, my aunts and uncles and cousins. I have seen them sitting in Havana's parks, reading the newspaper as if it mattered, or just mumbling their disapproval of the joint. I have seen them counting a few coins to buy a couple of tomatoes or a single onion in Los Agros, the farmer's markets where Cubans live most of their money in exchange for almost nothing. I have seen them sitting in El Malecón in the warm summer nights, looking at nothing in particular, not waiting for anything or anyone anymore, not even death. I have seen them in the balconies of buildings that could collapse any minute, looking down at the streets in which a country that they don't understand is born out of the remnants of a country they never really liked, built on the wreckage of a country they have almost forgotten. I have seen them sitting in their living rooms watching television with the doors open to the night and their hearts and minds already closed forever. Casta Diva, the protagonist of the first story of the book, which is called Casta Diva, is Loli, our neighbor in Centro Habana, for whom I used to carry buckets of water up two flights of stairs once or twice every week. We live in a small apartment in the ground floor and we were lucky because we had water for one hour or two hours every, every day. So Loli lived with her ailing husband until he got sick and went to live with his children from another woman. She stayed behind, frail and lonely and scared. She was herself ill and waited in vain her turn for an operation. She did not have the money to bribe her way up the waiting list, so she stayed in her flat, often in pain, and spent many days without descending the two flights of stairs, not bothering sometimes even to check whether her tiny rations of rice, cooking oil, and chicken were ready for collection in La Bodega, the, the grocery shop. 
I can imagine that like Casta Diva in the story, Lolly will step out of her apartment, even go as far as the street door, then stop, and after a moment of painful hesitation, go back home. My mother, who is older than Lolly, will check on her like Nelly that does to Otilia in La Mujer de al Lado, The Woman Next Door, uh, which is the second story of the book. Uh, and sometimes we'll bring her an avocado or a mango or a little bag of red beans or a handful of vitamin C tablets if she had some for herself. Lolly will complain about the heat, about Havana's filthiness, about the chusmeria or lack of manners mm -hmm. of her neighbors and uh, about the lack of respect the young showed for the elders but will never dare to blame the government for her predicament. You know, orally, this is all she will say uh, in a whisper. Esto está muy malo. This is very bad. At the end, tired of waiting for an operation, she did what Esperanza, one of the sisters of wealth, Luz y Esperanza, which is the third story of the book, wanted to do. She packed her things and went to live with a cousin in Manzanillo, in Oriente, where she confided to me last time I visited, everything is clean and tidy, but she's starving. The family of Benny Arroyo in Sierra Maestra, uh, which is another uh, of the stories, reminded me of Margot and her family, who were also our neighbors in the ghetto in Centro Habana, where they occupied a superb ground floor apartment in, in a two-story building with an inner patio that was next to a decrepit and overcrowded three-story relic from which big chunks of concrete were always falling, threatening to kill one day a passerby. Like the building, uh, where the Arroyo's enemy, the curiously named Lugo Dose, lives in the story. Like the Arroyo's, the family of Margot had lost their business during the Offensiva Revolucionaria or Revolutionary Offensive of 1968. Her brother, like Benny Arroyo's, uh, left Cuba, though I don't ever met the man and I don't know if he held a grudge against the people who took their business as strong as the one Felix Arroyo held against Lugo Dose in the story. Margot's house in Centro Habana, uh, and the splendid third floor apartment her son inherited in a leafy and very bourgeois street in El Vedado were full of wonders. Our books painted, uh, printed in France and England, authentic Art Nouveau lamps, beautiful porcelain, a piano, original painting from minor Cuban artists of the 40s and 50s. I wouldn't be surprised if Margot had, or might have had, carefully hidden in the trunk or under the floor, a diamond brush like the one Luz and Esperanza cannot find anywhere in the story. Still, my mother will also give Margot, for all her riches, um, a little bit of powdered milk and some lemons if she had managed to buy some in the black market. Um, where was I? Margot lived a long life and spent her last year sitting in the balcony of the Bedado apartment, like Benny Arroyo in his, remembering her son who died young, and her brother who died in the United States. Talking about her brother's children and grandchildren with great affection while cruelly criticizing her own lovely granddaughter for every one of her real and imaginary flaws and claiming she was stealing from her. She wasn't. Esto está muy malo. This is very bad. She will say to me when I visited, whispering like Lolly, although by then almost a hundred years old, uh, let's say that she was not likely to be arrested by the Seguridad del Estado for bad-mouthing the government. Humberto Beltrán, the protagonist of A Lonely Man, Un Hombre Solo, reminds me of my own stepfather, who was once as vigorous and athletic as Ivan Telos Humberto once was, and who, like my neighbor Lolly's husband, went to live in his final months with his son and his son's wife, not, though, with his son's husband. Like Humberto, though I wonder whether he will have had a problem with that. 
He was embarrassed, my stepfather, by his frailty and resented depending on the care of his son, with whom he had had a difficult relationship, though much better than Umberto and his son, Hugo's, in the story. He used to work, my stepfather, near the television studios at Mason y San Miguel, where Umberto used to pick girls who waited outside to get into a show recording and see famous actors and singers, maybe Carlos Moctezuma or maybe Alfredito Rodriguez. And he almost daily perambulated the same streets that Umberto does in his journey. I met several women like Otilia Ramos, the tragic, shadowy character of Una Mujer Sola. No, that's not Una Mujer Sola, that's La, that's mujer. The, la mujer de al lado. <laughs> la Mujer de al lado. A disgraced party cutter who lives alone surrounded by her neighbors this day. There was Esther, the eternal president of the, our local committee for the defense of the revolution, a position all the neighbors agreed to decline on her benefit. Uh, who never rose as high as Otilia did, but who exercised with great gusto her little quota of power, a tin pot dictator who will give a bad political reference to anyone who crossed her. If you wanted your son to join the Young Communist League, which was an important career move, or travel abroad with a youth delegation, or study journalism at the University of Havana, uh, you better keep peace with Esther. She will keep tally of anyone who did not join the Workers' Daily Day rally, or had not attended the committee's meeting or the Women's Day party, and she will wait the moment to strike. Her son inevitably left Cuba as soon and as fast as he could. And when she died alone of a beastly disease, as Otilia will in the story, no one in the sphere will dare to even utter a kind word in her memory. I cannot help suspecting that I might yet become, myself, one of Ivan's characters, Dr. Pablo Tobar, the hero of the last story of the book, Rosary Gardens who at the end of his journey finds himself alone in London, abandoned by his son, walking aimlessly around Kensington. If it has to be Kensington, so be it, so be it. Reminiscing about his family's house in Havana and his dead sister Cecilia, sipping mocha in a French cafe and wondering what else he can do in the rest of the day. At least Dr. Tovar has a happy ending. He decides to move to Spain, aren't we all? As you can see, Ivan's beautiful, lovingly written book is very personal to me. I will struggle to name a book whose themes and characters I am more familiar with, besides, of course, The Odyssey. The strangest scene is that I have never told Ivan about my old people, and yet he seems to have met them. There are other, even more heartbreaking stories that I could tell, but I suspect Ivan will know them too. He has chosen not to write, I wouldn't say it, avoid, about ancianos, old people who have sunk into the very bottom of Cuba. Those who go days without eating much or anything at all. Those who roam the streets of all Havana begging tourists and Cubans alike for five cents of Seuse, the country's infamous convertible currency. Those who rent their homes and their rooms for the hour to prostitutes. Those who still work into their 80s selling grandma, the Communist Party's newspaper, in the streets or doing any kind of menial job for their neighbors in return for a few pesos or un plato de comida, food. The madmen who scare uh, people in parks and bus stops, the redeemable drunkards, and the homeless. The scene that really pains me in this country, my friend Annette, keeps telling me, what really changes and troubles me is Los Viejos, the old. The economic catastrophe that has devastated Cuba in the last 30 years has hit old people the hardest, to the point that one wonders how many of them survive. Ivan's stories don't have the pretension of being demographically, culturally, racially inclusive. Why will they? They present a gallery of people who, 
all things considered, are not doing too badly. Castadiva's son lives in Atlantic City. Nelida and Fellow's daughters also live abroad. Humberto Beltran's son is a nurse, and his son's boyfriend, the true breadwinner in the house, uh, owns a gym. Esperanza might have lost her apartment in Old Havana in a derrumbe, the building collapsed. But she lives now with her sister Luz in the family's grand house, and they might still find, after all, that uh, diamond brush somewhere. The Arroyos lost their business, but kept their house, and Benny's son apparently has one of those juicy estates jobs that people transform into personal enterprises. En este país todo el mundo roba. In this country, everyone steals. Silvia Arroyo tells his father, a phrase, a phrase that I have heard thousands of times, and which summarizes in seven Spanish words the state of both Cuba's economy and the morality of its people, in a, in a devastating indictment of the legacy of the 1959 revolution. It also explains the predicament of the old. They don't get a chance to steal anything anymore. They depend on the charity of their relatives abroad or their children's ability to find their way in the new Cuban economy, a corrupt and inefficient mixture of all school socialism and primitive capitalism. I cannot stand to think how my mother will survive, how she will be doing on her own, with her state pension of 120 categorically not convertible pesos. The stories of Viejos Retratos de La Habana refer tangentially to the wider historical context of these characters' lives. The Cuban government itself is hardly ever mentioned, and issues like freedom of expression or political rights don't trouble these people, and they certainly don't trouble most of the people I know in Cuba as much as they trouble me. If I am correct, Fidel Castro is mentioned only once in the book, in Sierra Maestra, mm -hmm. when tells us the legion of Lugo Doce, who fought in the mountains alongside El Comandante. The songs of Otilia are called, typically, Ernestico, who was killing Angola, Fidelito and Camilo, but their names seem to have lost any meaning. They are no longer attributed, not even uh, evidence of her mother's guilt. They seem almost coincidental. But these stories grasp subtly and compassionately the affliction that all these poor people suffer, disappointment, the national malaise, disappointment with their bodies, Benny Arroyo's knees, Luz, arthritic hands, Umberto's back, disappointment with their children who have left their country or have become something different from what they had hoped they will become. Disappointment with the turns their lives took and even with tiny but chattering domestic cataclysms. Umberto finds out that the young woman he plans to seduce have moved out. Esperanza cannot find the phone number of those cousins of her husband in Camagüey. Nelida cannot remember the year when the mercaditos were closed. And it's, it's not quite sad, but it's felt throughout. Disappointment with their country, which has let them down, which has brought them to this unpeaceful end. The protagonists of this story seem to be hiding in their own houses from their country, which rumbles along in the streets. Castadiva dances a party day with the world outside her building every single day, daring herself to go out and always retreating back to her lonely apartment. Nelida, Luz, and Esperanza travel extensively across the geography of their houses, but it feels as if they will never step out of them again. Umberto does make a long journey, almost a 20-year or odyssey from Basarrate Street to Alfoxa, which is actually a 20-minute walk, uh, in which he meets Cyclops and mermaids, the seemingly gay man who calls him Mejestorio, 
old man. The girls who call him Abuelo, Grandpa. One of his former lovers, who is now been transformed into a harpy. But at the end, he returns home, defeated, demoralized, and ready to sign a truce with his son in exchange for refuge and food, maybe a few kind words. And across the street, Benny Arroyo, the former owner of a colchoneria, a madres factory, and Lugo Doce, the former Sierra Maestra guerrilla, look at each other's eyes with undiminished hatred. The Cuba before Fidel looking at Fidel's Cuba as if it still were 1968. In Benny's mind, his brother keeps shouting the promise of a revenge. Me las vas a pagar. You will pay for this. But we know these two men are now as good as dead, as the Cuba before Fidel and Fidel Cuba are as well. They are now just guests who have outstayed their welcome in Silvio Arroyo's Cuba, where everyone steals. I invite you to read Viejo uh, Retratos de La Habana, sincerely. It broke my heart, and it might do the same to you. I felt there was something there that I still care for, something pure and wonderful, uh, and yet untouched by my despair and my cynicism. How can I call it? Uh, the word that I come up with is home. So I thank Ivan for it, deeply and unreservedly. Mm -hmm.